Hello and welcome to this podcast produced by the Northern Region of the University and College Union. My name's John Bryan and in this episode I'm speaking to Victoria Murray who is the Equality Officer for UCU at Northumbria University and coming up later on I'll also be speaking to Andy Clark who was part of the anti-casualisation campaign that UCU ran at Newcastle University. So before we speak to Victoria, I just want to highlight the Twitter account which she runs, which is Equality at UCU Northumbria. And you can find it on Twitter at Equality UCU N-O-R and then the number one. Now in February, it was LGBT History Month and they were trying to start a conversation about the favourite films that people had with an LGBT focus. You can look at the tweets and contribute to it, but before that I spoke to Victoria about what she was trying to do with the campaign. Well, I'm delighted to welcome back to the podcast Victoria Murray, who is the UCU Equality Officer at Northumbria University and particularly talking about the Twitter account that she's been running and what she's been trying to do for LGBT History Month this year. So, Vicky, if I can start off, first of all, what have you been doing and why did you set up an Equality Northumbria University UCU Twitter account, first of all? Oh, thanks for having me back on, John. Um, First of all, the, the reason that we've set up the account is because there is so much information around equality that the purpose of the account is really to be a go-to place where you can find out information around latest policy, latest events, and really just giving equality um, the the visibility that it deserves. Um, And obviously that's channeled through uh, a a trade unionist perspective as well. So it's really just to help our members engage with matters which affect everybody um, and keep up to date with what's going on in the branch as well. That's great. And what you've done for February 2021, as I said, for LGBT History Month, you've tried to kind of get a conversation going about films and, you know, the focus of of certain films. And you started off with Pride, which is a a well-known film to lots of people who who know about the trade union movement and know about uh, lesbian and gay issues. So do you want to talk talk to us about that, Vicky, and what... um, what you were trying to do with with that campaign? Well, Pride was, for me, the obvious choice of film to start with. So the the tweets recently have been around um, how LGBT culture in film has has been made more visible, has been celebrated. So Pride is the first first choice that I went with because it's a personal favourite of mine. So I I was a little bit self-indulgent in that sense. For anyone who hasn't seen it, it's a film that was released in 2014 and it's set in 1984 when Margaret Thatcher obviously was heading up the Tory government and of course that's when the National Union of Mine Workers was taking strike action. And it's a really powerful film which shows the um, importance of solidarity because it takes two seemingly on the surface different groups of people So we've got some striking miners in a Welsh village and we've got a group of gay activists who essentially 
come from different parts of the country, um, you know, perhaps um, socialising in different circles and really just form this amazing bond, this amazing support. They come together over a common cause, uh, which essentially is to be treated with, with dignity and respect, which is obviously what we all want. Um, but they do it in such a way which is just absolutely inspiring. And I have to say, um, it's something that whilst the film is based on real life and is set back in the in the 80s, we still feel the effect of this today. Because if anyone has ever been to the Durham and Miners Gala, you will remember or you'll hopefully notice that LGSM, Lesbian and Gay Support the Miners, the group which is featured in this film, you know, are at the gala every year with their flag, really uh, proud of the trade union history and heritage that we've got and the, as I say, the power that can come from solidarity. Um, and certainly I always look out for them when I visit. Um, and what I find really inspiring about the film in particular is in the, if the, I'll not give anything away for anyone who hasn't seen it, but in the closing scene that when the credits roll at the end, it gives an update of what the, the, the people in the film, the, the, the real people in the film went on to do and see how they took this moment and really ran with it and went on to do amazing things for, 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 um, the the movement and for wider society it's just so inspiring that it makes you want to go on and do better um and of course in respect of one of the main characters the sense of what they achieved in such a short period of time and again i'll not give any spoilers away hopefully really again helps you reassess well actually what have i done and what could I go on and, and do more with my time and, and my abilities? So it, I have to say, if you haven't seen it, please do watch it. It really is a great film. It's got a fantastic cast, um, you know, household names that you'll have seen in various films and TV dramas before. It's just brilliant in all senses of the word. And, you know, like you, I've been to the Durham Miners Gala a number of times and obviously we missed out last year because of the covid pandemic i'm looking forward to the durham miners gala this year which i know they're already making preparations for and like you i've looked out for the lesbian and gay men who support the miners banner and it's great seeing it and in fact when you go onto their twitter account you notice that pictures on there and the background on there are from the durham miners gala which shows that that you know continuity of solidarity between you know, different, you know, groups who are fighting for fighting for something which is right and fighting for equality, as as you say. Now you mentioned a few few other kind of um films in the uh in on the Twitter account. And is there anything in particular that you want to talk about, other kind of favourites of yours, Victoria? Is there anything that you want to kind of highlight which you think people might get something from watching? I know Pride is something that you'll definitely get something from watching. What about other films that you think are important? I think all of them, and and I guess I tried to pick a selection of films that highlighted different different themes, different issues. Um, so the other films that I've highlighted in particular were are the Danish Girl. So that was back in two thousand and fifteen. Um, it was Eddie Redmayne. 
I think he was just coming off the back of Le Mis, so you know it was quite a, a different film for him. And that was again based on a, a real life person, the Danish artist Lily Elba. Lily went under gender confirmation surgery in the early 1930s, so giving a historical um, insight into what um, practices were back in those days. And again, really fascinating story of personal strength and resilience and the importance of being able to live the life that you want to lead, regardless of what society might have to say about that. Um, and slightly con in contrast to that, again, another film that was highlighted on the account was Brokeback Mountain, which was back in 2005. So that was the old... The, the, less recent of the films that are selected. Um, and of course, had huge attention when it was uh, first released. And and quite sadly, from my perspective, the, the media attention tended to be directed at one particular scene in that film. But actually, the film is, is not about that at all. It's about, you know, two people who come together and really just, you know, start a relationship which lasts for, for many years. It charts the relationship between Heath Ledger and Jake Gyllenhaal's character over a, a period of many years and ends quite tragically. And that comes from essentially being forced to hide who you are and try and conform, which, of course, you know, times have moved on to some extent since then. Um, but it really just shows, you know, the importance of being able to live as you want to live. Essentially, we all have the right to fall in love and fall uh, and form a relationship. But obviously, that is not always straightforward. The law hasn't always been helpful in that respect. It certainly imposed quite a number of barriers to people in wanting to to live as as they choose um, in in a society that's acceptant accepting and tolerant and I just find it really interesting that it seems to me that certainly from the early um, 2010 onwards there's been this proliferation and increase in films which have got um, LGBT stories at their heart and I think that's really positive so the Twitter feed was really to try and celebrate that and reflect on the visibility of how LGBT culture is now within the mainstream. And it's a great thing to be talking about. And it's a real conversation starter, I thought, when I saw the tweets that you were putting out. I mean, particularly as, you know, I know it's not a film, but it's a sin, you know, which has been on Channel 4 and, and it's, you can still get it on all four, has been something, you know, for this year, 2021, people have been talking about and obviously looking back to the 1980s and that period of growing up uh, and what it, what it was to be, um, you know, a gay man at that particular time in the 1980s and, you know, the culture in which, in which people were facing. And I think it is good to look back on, you know, the way in which history is portrayed in media so that we can begin to kind of understand a bit about what was going on at the time. Absolutely. Uh, and I think it's really important that th 
these shows are commissioned that we have support for writers to tell their stories to 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 educate allies to create allies and champions i mean i haven't seen it's a sin yet i'm saving it because i i hear we uh, that it's just once you get into it it's one of the things that you have to binge in one go so i am old enough to remember russell t davies um predecessor to it's a sin which was queer as folk which was shown on on channel four um and i think i was a teen at the time maybe mid to late teens and I, I was at an all-girls school, so um, a, quite a conservative, quite a traditional school. It felt so important to me that there were accessible programs to really help, you know, educate me and open my mind on issues that I didn't necessarily have any direct experience about. And I just think, again, this, this Twitter thread is a way of trying to, to celebrate, to recognise, to increase visibility, to show that you can be an ally. And I really hope that um, people will contribute to it. I hope that people will have a look at these suggestions that have been posted on there. And I really hope that there's something for everyone. I'm really interested in hearing what other um Twitter users have got to keep the thread going with their suggestions because there is such a wealth of great um, cinema out there that it would be really fantastic if we could to, to just share and promote that in any way that we can really. We hope that you're enjoying listening to this podcast and just a reminder that the Twitter account which Victoria Murray runs, is Equality at UCU Northumbria. And you can find it on Twitter at Equality, U-C-U-N-O-R, and then the number one. And just to also mention that the Newcastle University branch of UCU have started a petition against the redundancies at the London campus of Newcastle University. You can find the petition by going to www.tinyurl.com forward slash save London campus. That's tinyurl.com forward slash save London campus. Please do go on that link and sign the petition because it looks like there's a number of people's jobs are at risk as we speak. Now, as well as the Northumbria University UCU Equality Twitter account, which started a conversation about LGBT History Month, I noticed on Twitter that Andy Clark from Newcastle University UCU had been talking about the recent victory that they had had in their negotiations with the management at Newcastle University over anti-casualisation. I asked Andy about how he became involved in the union campaign and how he managed to become anti-casualisation officer and what happened during that campaign. So I began at Newcastle University in a research associate position in November 2017 in the history department. Now, the history department has a number of active UCU members. So once I kind of got in there and was, was speaking to people and discussing issues, I, I realised that there was a real impetus 
emerging around anti-casualisation with people like Matt Perry, Bruce Baker, Sarah Campbell and others really looking for the branch to take a more active campaigning role around issues of casualisation. So in the December of 2018, uh, 2017, uh, sorry, I was co-opted onto the branch committee as the first ever anti-casualisation officer at Newcastle. And the reason why I was kind of selected or, or chose to go onto the committee was, although I was in a fixed-term contract, so I had a level of precarity, that contract was over three years. So there was some time to build a campaign that would have some longevity because the problem with organising casual staff is a lot of times people are only members or, or work at the university for a semester or a term or for nine months and it can be quite difficult to build a campaign around that. So with the three years kind of security that I had, it made sense to, to lead the campaign because I could build something that wouldn't just be a very short-term approach, but actually build connections and build solidarities across the university over the medium to long term. And one of the things that you highlighted in particular was the shift to 12-month contracts as a minimum for temporary teaching contracts. I just want you to explain why that was such an important issue for you at Newcastle University UCU and why you wanted to tackle that and get a resolution which you thought that members would be satisfied with. The, the example of the kind of terminology that I used in trying to explain this to the university is they were in a situation where they were constantly plugging gaps in teaching provision. So perhaps a week before the semester started, or even in some cases days before the semester started, they realised they had a gap that needed filled by a, a casual member of staff to come in and deliver teaching. But what that means, if it's, if it's only over the semester or over nine months or ten months, it has significant negative impacts on the member of staff involved. Firstly, you don't have time and you certainly don't have paid time to prepare your modules. You know, preparing classes for a semester or for a year is a really um, significant piece of work that, that takes a lot of effort, it takes a lot of time. And the situation where people would just come in at the last minute meant that they were doing that work for free. They were doing it in the evenings, at the weekends, and they were doing it in their own time. So a real significant problem emerges in terms of who's able to do that, who are the people that are in a position where they have free evenings and free weekends, but also the the core of the, the um, employment relationship in terms of you work and you're paid for that work. So there was a substantial amount of free labour being undertaken. And at the other end of that, when the semester would finish, that member would then do their marking, do all of that, and then in the, their employment relationship would end. So you're not getting um, the opportunity for paid holidays. You're not getting the opportunity for paid leave. So you're essentially living very much semester to semester without the benefits that the trade union movement has fought so hard for over the last 100 years in terms of paid preparation time and paid holiday time. So by making sure that it's a 12-month minimum, that means that that member has time to prepare the classes, prepare the materials over the summer before teaching begins. And then after the teaching period has paid holiday leave. So you're able to actually refresh and relax um, rather than just going straight from contract to contract. So it's a major and significant victory that I think UCU should be really pushing in other places. We took a lot of inspiration from UCU at Durham, who won a similar victory uh, a couple of years ago. And in speaking to members, one of the things that 
I was really involved in as anti-casualisation officer was actually going out to different departments and different schools to, to speak to people, to find out what the lived experience of this type of precarity was. And the situation emerged that people were completely burning themselves out because they had so much to do to prepare for the start of a semester. And then when it came to the next summer, they were, they were too tired to do anything else and they had no time to do research or to develop their career in other ways because they were looking at where the next contract was going to come from in the next couple of months. So it's not complete security in terms of employment contract. It's not perfect in terms of what we would like to do next, but it does bring significant material benefit to our members who are on shorter-term teaching contracts. I think that's really helpful in terms of explaining some of the real issues that people have when they are employed on precarious contracts. I just wondered if there's any other specific areas that you wanted to highlight around the campaign that you've had and how you managed to resolve those issues. In terms of what is fixed in the new policy, one of the the most significant impacts, I think, is the automatic conversion to open-ended contracts after four years' continuous service. Now, this just brings a university in line with current legislation. But what was happening previously is staff were employed for four years, five years, six years, seven years, up until and including 18 years continuous service with the university. But they were never told and they never had a conversation about how they were now entitled to shift from the precarious contract that they were working on from year to year to an open-ended employment relationship. And that's had major impacts. Most of the casework that I was involved in as anti-casualisation officer was with those members who had worked at the university over a long period of time, but who still relied year to year to find out if they were going to be given future employment. Now, that has major impacts on the members and, and on the staff because you can't, for example, apply for a mortgage. You can't plan your future. Even trying to rent a place can be difficult because you can't demonstrate ongoing employment security. And one of the, the members that I worked with during this, they had been at Newcastle for seven or eight years. They were a non-UK and a non-EU citizen. So every year they had to go back to the Home Office and try and demonstrate that their visa should be extended. But in order to do so, they had to wait for the university to confirm that they were going to have work going forward. So this simple thing which places the burden on the employer to convert to those open-ended contracts means that for those members of staff, they know that they have ongoing work. They know that they can plan for the future. Their contract is a very simple change. It goes from fixed term to open-ended. But in terms of what you can do and how you can plan your life, it makes a massive difference to people in terms of offering that level of security. Because if you are going to be let go by the university at that point, it's not just a case of, well, your contract's over and we're not renewing it. The university then has to go through the proper consultation process with the union. So it's shifted it from an individual conversation to the collective conversation where UCU can then become involved. And to, to their credit, People Services Newcastle really grasped the importance of this. It wasn't something that we really had to fight for and, and campaign with them. Once we demonstrated these examples that would popped up across the university, it was clear to them that this situation was not feasible, not only for the staff involved, but also for the university because they weren't adhering to their legal obligations. But again, it's the case in so many universities where 
you're on a fixed-term contract and it's renewed every year and it's renewed every year. And those conversations, you don't have them with either your line manager or someone senior to you because it's just not part of the lexicon of the institution. What we have here is um, prominently placed in our new policy that unless your line manager disagrees, you will become a permanent member of staff after four years and gain all the benefits that being open-ended entitles you to. I mean, when we listen to the successes that you've had, there'll be a number of people listening to this who will want to know how you did it, what others can learn about your campaign. And I suppose what's the next step for the union at Newcastle University in continuing to challenge the precarious nature of much of employment in higher education? So have you got any top tips for us and what next really for the campaign? In terms of the lessons, what we did as a, as a branch and as a campaign was to ensure that anti-casualisation was at the core of our activity. It wasn't something that I worked on and kind of burrowed away and then brought back to the committee. It was a standing item on the committee agenda where we would discuss it. Even if there wasn't much to discuss, you're just raising that consciousness that this is an ongoing campaign that's something that we're continuing to work on. I was fortunate, given the the employment contract I had as a research contract, that I was able to carve out time to speak to members across the university. And I think that's one of the, the most challenging things for anti-casualisation campaigns. It's been able to sit down with members to listen to their concerns and to understand what their priorities are. Because many hourly paid or casual staff are only on campus for those times when they're paid to be there. They don't tend to be there um, any other time, especially if they're travelling. So even the simple things we did, like we offered travel expenses. If, if you were a, a precarious member of staff and we were having an anti-casualisation meeting, which would require you to come onto campus when you weren't being paid to be there, we would reimburse your um, travel costs or your other associated expenses to make sure that no one was left out of the conversations. But being able to go into different schools, departments and faculties to just have those conversations, it gives you a good sense of one, what the main issues and problems are across the university, but also, and perhaps even more importantly, where the areas of good practice are. Because with casualisation, it was what we found at Newcastle, and from my previous experience of working at universities in Scotland, I think it's the same. Many faculties and departments use fixed-term precarious contracts in different ways. There's no consistency across the institution. Whereas that does mean that there are some areas of really bad practice, it also means that there are plenty of examples of good practice where there are heads of school or school managers who have implemented progressive policies um, in regards to how they treat their casual staff. So, for example, we had one school in Newcastle that was already automatically converting hourly paid staff to fractional contracts. So what you can do when you discover these pockets of good practice is you can then take them to HR for the institution and say, you know, for example, this is happening in the School of History. Why can it not happen in geography or in politics? So it's about, about levelling up. And that's something that Bruce Baker and I, when we began the, the negotiations, we put a lot of focus into that, that um, research of where are these areas of good practice and making the case to HR that if it's good enough for one school, it's surely good enough for the institution. So a lot of the, 
the wins that we got over the campaign were based on those areas of good practice. So you're not bringing something to the university that is completely alien to the working practices, hopefully, but you're actually demonstrating that in other in certain areas of the university, this is already being done. So it's proven that it does work and it works to the benefit of the university and more importantly for the union to our membership. In terms of the future campaign, so quite ironically, I had to step down from my position as anti-casualisation officer early in 2020 because my contract was coming to an end and I had to go through the formal redundancy process. Thankfully, um, to the support of UCU, we managed to... Um, fight against that and I'm still on employment which is fantastic um, but I wasn't able then to put the same type, time and effort and resources into the campaign so when I stepped down in April or May 2020 Nick Rush Cooper was then elected as anti-casualisation officer and Nick was really involved in the campaign that we had been building over the last three years so he's, it's very much a good continuity of what we've been doing so the main area of concern for the anti-casualisation campaign and the negotiations in the immediate future is looking at the hourly paid members of staff. It was the one area in the policy that we did win that we didn't get the the fixed commitment from the university. And that a lot of that was to do with, with COVID, with the lockdown and all the things that went along with that. But what we did have from HR was okay, we've now got the fixed-term policy that we're all agreeable with. We will now move on to look at how to improve the situation of hourly paid members of staff and also to try and shift the balance away from relying on hourly paid members of staff. So the university have committed to sharing data with UCU, which is massively important. You don't have to rely on FOI requests. You don't have to rely on goodwill. We have it in writing that HR will send to UCU figures in terms of how many hourly paid members of staff do we have and how many of those are being converted onto open-ended fractional contracts. So it's about shifting the focus away from hourly paid contracts. And again, that example I used of constantly plugging gaps to shift away from that approach to improve terms and conditions for members onto, if it's fractional, but it's open-ended contracts. So again, you're not relying year on, year in, year out to find out if you're going to have work, you're going to have that added sense of security, which has been so lacking across the higher education sector and the FE sector as well over the last number of years. Because one of the things that I realised um, throughout the negotiations was the reliance on casual labour actually costs the institution a lot of resource. It costs a lot of time. It costs a lot of money. And in speaking to UCU members in the professional services, so much of their time is spent trying to chase up people to come in and, and take over modules and figure out how many hours of teaching need plugged over year to year. And the case that we made, and it was one that we could demonstrate quite clearly, was this is an inefficient way to run an organisation. If you want to talk in the language of HR, if you like, it's not an efficient way to use your human resources, if you like. it's It's been built up over the last 10, 15 years as casualisations become worse. And we're now in a situation with many institutions where they don't, the senior level, especially the executive or the Senate, they don't actually have a sense of how significant the problem is, but also how 
that impacts on the resources and the efficiency of the university. And once you're able to have those conversations and speak to the university and speak to management about how this will benefit them as well as members in the union, yeah, actually what we found was significant areas of agreement and, and, and common purpose, if you like, with the people we're negotiating with. And I think that led to what was overall a positive negotiation experience with a good result at the end of it. Thanks very much for that. Just before we finish, is there anything else that you want to highlight for people listening in that you want them to know and how perhaps can they contact Newcastle University UCU? Well, thanks very much for having me on, John. It's, it's nice to talk about these victories and successes where we can, especially in the current climate of what's been happening over the last year. I would just say for, for any union officials or other sister branches listening to the podcast, please feel free to get in touch with UCU at newcastle.ac.uk and we can discuss and share resources about what we did during our campaign and how we can support other campaigns that want to take a similar approach to what we did. That's great. Thanks very much indeed, Andy. Thank you, John. Thanks very much for listening to this episode. We hope that you enjoyed the content. Please don't forget to like, favourite or subscribe to this podcast in whichever app you use. And leave us a review and also share our podcast with others. You can find Newcastle Anti-Casualisation Campaign run by Newcastle University UCU on Twitter, which is at N-U-Anti-Cas. That's N-U-A-N-T-I-C-A-S. And don't forget that Newcastle University UCU is also available on Twitter at Newcastle Uni UCU. Thanks again for listening in. See you next time.